This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, guest host Dr. Anthony Eames, director of scholarly initiatives at the Reagan Institute, speaks with Dr. James Cooper, associate professor in history and American studies at York St. John University in the United Kingdom. Anthony and James spoke about the relationship between Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher, as well as broader US-UK relations. Hello, I'm Anthony Eames, Director of Scholarly Initiatives at the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. I'm serving as your guest host today, and I'm pleased to welcome James Cooper from York St. John's University in the United Kingdom to talk about his new book, A Diplomatic Reading, Reagan, Thatcher, and the Art of Symmetry. Uh, James is a associate professor at York St. John's University. He has been a Fulbright scholar, a fellow at the Royal Historical Society, and has written quite a bit on the Reagan-Thatcher relationship. James, great to have you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me, Anthony. And James, you go by Jim, so we can call you Jim, correct? Yeah, call me Jim, please. If you call me James, I think I'm in trouble, so... uh... (laughs) So, Jim, uh, I think you have uh, an interesting take on our friends Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher that probably doesn't conform with the conventional wisdom about um, their relationship. And I, I just want to ask you, uh, are they political soulmates or not? Yeah, it's, it's a great question to kick off with. I think Reagan and Thatcher are always seen in terms of um, probably popular debate or how we think about um, Anglo-American relations in that sort of tradition of Franklin Roosevelt, Winston Churchill, John F. Kennedy and Harold Macmillan, and you got Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher, and then of course you get Tony Blair and Bill Clinton, George W. Bush's examples, this kind of special relationship um, between the American president and the British prime minister. And Reagan and Thatcher is very much seen as kind of the high point of this in many ways. You get these just coming together, these um, um, conservative um, philosophies, share common commonality and considered philosophy sharing of the more free market economics um almost a new right um emerges in the 70s and the 80s they're kind of very much seen as big leaders of this but actually if you look closely at it all um they're not really the same often they're seen to be like reagan and thatcher they're the same Reaganism and thatcher are the same kind of thing but actually it's not the case and then that's often because you know maybe they probably have the same um, shared philosophy of maybe smaller governments, um, the importance of free markets, the importance of incentives for taxation policy, the importance of what Reagan would call sound money in terms of lowering inflation, the importance of standing up to the Soviet Union in the Cold War. How those philosophies played out across either side of the Atlantic um, happened very differently. Um, so, um, and that's because of institutional differences, um, political differences and so on. But also, ultimately, these are two politicians who are have their own interests have their own interests at heart. And sometimes those interests kind of collided as well. Right, and so you um, you uh, kind of walk us through the relationship a bit before they become prime minister and president respectively. Something we don't hear too much about. Uh, Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher actually knew each other in the 1970s, maybe even earlier it seems. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how they got to know each other, uh, why it seemed like their philosophies of governance might be aligned, and how they actually uh, 
didn't seem to be so in the end. Um, well, the the first time Thatcher claimed she heard about Ronald Reagan was Reagan delivers a speech at the Institute of Directors um, over here in, in the UK. And her husband, Dennis, was there. And um, he came home and was raving and saying how wonderful um, Ronald Reagan was, who then was governor of California. And um, so she, according to her memoir, so her looking back, of course, in hindsight, made a point to um, keep a note of, of this and look out for Ronald Reagan. And Reagan, Thatcher goes over to um, the United States um, as, as, a, as a basically as a, as a junior member of parliament in the 1960s on a, on a tour um, to meet congressional leaders and um, you know, State Department things. So that's kind of a common thing. And obviously, the US Congress, the base, you know, Congress people go over, don't represent this kind of tours of the world like China or you know, Europe and visit, you know, to, to speak with their counterparts and fact-finding missions and so on. So Thatcher did that kind of thing. But in 1975, she's elected leader of the Conservative Party. And in many respects, she's elected to lead the Conservative Party because she wasn't Ted Heath, who was her predecessor. So she's very much um, a leap in the dark for the Conservative Party, um, the, the faith of the MPs and then the party members and so on. And she was having a bit of difficulty establishing her own political identity. So even though she was much more interested in domestic affairs, she undertook a series of foreign trips to kind of add some extra gravitas and expose her to foreign affairs, have her be photographed meeting world leaders. So it's a bit like when presidential nominees in an election year, they always have their trip to Europe. So I remember Barack Obama came over to give a speech in Berlin and came to London. I remember Romney coming over as well, meeting the prime minister and his opposition. It's all about being seen to be you know, a states person, waiting, get to know people and so on. So Thatcher did that, and um, when she undertook that, she didn't actually meet Reagan then, but she did meet President Gerald Ford. And of course, um, she writes Gerald Ford saying how wonderful he is, and uh, how you know that the world needs a strong America and that kind of thing. And also, um, when she meets the U.S. members of the U.S. Congress, all very impressed with her, and apparently people are passing notes saying, "Can we please take her over here?" And things that work out in Britain, we'd love to have her run for president. So, on. but Reagan, um, he also at the same, he actually comes over. Um, uh, in 1972, a few years, is it 73? Yeah, a few years previously. No, no, 75. He, meet, he comes over in 75 and he meets Margaret Thatcher then as well. Um, he, and, uh, but he meets her twice as well in the 70s. So one visit they meet, the second visit, um, the first visit, and this might be the do over, the first visit they meet, um, I think it's during the early 1970s when Reagan is an emissary for Richard Nixon. Um, he's kind of coming over to meet me, um, world leaders on his on his on, on Nixon's behalf, and Thatcher apparently has dinner with Reagan among lots of other people. In 1978, Ronald Reagan comes over to the UK as very much a private citizen, mm. and he meets with uh, and he wants to meet kind of world leaders and dignitaries, and the Labour government only basically offer a meeting with junior minister, and he goes on to speak of the, the, the deputy leader of the party, Roy Hattersley. Um, but Margaret Thatcher, who's in the lead of the opposition three years into it, she meets Ronald Reagan. She makes time for him. Because obviously she's met with Gerald Ford, Ford has lost, she's met with Gerald, um, Jimmy Carter as leader of the opposition. And she's probably got a good political antennae. She could probably know that Jimmy Carter's probably going to, you know, he's not looking good for him in terms of re-election. So she's thinking, Ronald Reagan, favourite for the Republican nominee nomination in 1980. And um, also she remembers the fact that, you know, He's just up her street, as we would say in the UK. Um, talk, similar talk to that she does, and espouses similar philosophy that she does. So she's have a good meeting. It's meant to be a short meeting. It goes on for over an hour. And um, then, of course, he's, he's elected 
um, she's elected prime minister and he's elected as president. When she's elected as prime minister, he tries to get a message sent through to her, but the British civil service don't care. They don't really prioritise a message from the former governor of California to feed the presidential candidate. They're not really interested. When she, when he's elected as president, apparently her message of congratulations is read out at the victory party. It's made sure that that's handed to the president-elect. Also, when Reagan in the late 70s doing his talk shows, he was keeping his political brand alive, his presence alive, um, doing his talk radio show and his you know, public speaking. He talked about Margaret Thatcher as well in that, especially when she selected as prime minister. Um, he talked about that our Maggie um, will go on and kind of sort out um, Britain and try to reverse British decline. So they definitely they are aware of each other. And um, Thatcher writes in a memoir that when Reagan's elected, she kind of waxes lyrical, but finally the United States is beacon of hope for the world has got the leader that it needs to, you know, reverse, um, you know, Western decline, the stand up to communism and get the economy going again. So it's very much, they are very much aware of each other and what each other stands for. And that happens, of course, uh, just by chance, you know, Dennis Thatcher hearing Reagan speak, um, Thatcher remembers it. Um, but what I will say is that these visits, Reagan's obviously doing his business to kind of make sure he's still a presence in American politics to show us that the photographs can be sent at home, um, that he's still a, a national figure. And so we can go into the Republican campaign nice and say, saying, I have met world leaders, I've met national figures and so on. And Thatcher's going to the United States. And as I said, she kind of praised General Ford when she was there. She really tried to make a, a real effort with Jimmy Carter and was nice to him, although it was very much picked up on their advisors, picked up those tensions between the two. So whoever was the American president, Thatcher was going to be trying to be, be close to. But her and Reagan certainly hit it off in terms of that broad philosophy and worldview. Jim, you said events do matter. Uh, some of those events that brought Reagan and Thatcher to power uh, seem to have a kind of eerie similarity to the events we're facing today. Uh, inflation, 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 inflation seems to be the thing that's on everyone's mind, at least in the United States, I, at least in the United States, I suspect also in the United Kingdom. Um, tell me a little bit about how they tackled inflation. And, and here it seems that you're finding some daylight between the two, even though I've been told from the time I was old enough to read history to the present day that they tackled it the same way. Um, but you seem to have a different take on that. And just remember that I'm not an economist. So if you could uh, kind of <laughs> keep it at, uh, you know, a, 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 a reader accessible, listener accessible level <laughs> for me to understand how they tackled inflation. Well, I'm not an economist either. Um, and uh, so I, I try to avoid, I always try to kind of avoid the, the real nitty gritty of economic theory. But um, so certainly, um, in my, in, my, in my first book, there's lots of footnotes about economic theory. Um, if people really want to get into the weeds of this thing, but I think in terms of inflation, how they tackle inflation, um, there's a few, there's three things to, to consider. The, the first, of course, there um, there's institutional differences in how they do this and how they can do this. So for Reagan, um, he doesn't really necessarily, in terms of having any control over monetary policy, it's the Federal Reserve. So it's Paul Volcker's Federal Reserve, and Paul Volcker, of course, was a Jimmy Carter appointee. Um, so, and of course, they're implementing a monetarism, you know, the theory of the day, Milton Freeman's theory of the day. In the UK, up until 1997, when the, um, Tony Blair's government comes in, uh, we didn't have an independent central bank. 
So the government would set interest rates and therefore control monetary policy and so on. So if Thatcher is kind of directly having a say over inflation and monetary policy, like her predecessors have, whereas for Reagan, it's more the Federal Reserve kind of control of this. For Thatcher, for how they tackle, how the British tackle inflation, they use high interest rate. They raise interest rates to reduce the money supply. And Thatcher is very interested in different types of money. And um, I remember I was interviewing um, a great economist, Erwin Steltzer, um, years ago, and he made the comment to me that when he first met Margaret Thatcher, she said to him, Are you, do, you, do you look at M0 or M1 or M2? There's different types of money. And we can never imagine Ronald Reagan asking, asking a question like that. So, so Thatcher took big interest in this, and they use high interest rates to lower the inflation. Um, so you have a lot of my parents tell me stories about you know, interest rates from like 16%, and you don't know you're born, that kind of stuff. You know, we're worried about like going to 1.5% interest rates for a bit. Um, which still hurts. I mean, you know, the, the times times change and circumstances change. But in America, of course, it's Paul Volcker's Fed. And my understanding of the American um, monetary policy was that the high interest rates were a result of the limiting of the money supply. So in Britain, we used the high interest rates to, to, to slow the money supply, control money supply. Whilst in America, the interest rates went up because of their efforts to control the money, the money supply, so the monetary based control. That's my understanding of the key differences. And then, so really, that's not necessarily. Reagan Thatcher differences, kind of institutional differences. But the main thing is that Milton Friedman, I don't think he was very impressed with what anyone did. Um, Milton Friedman, he, um, he sent, um, I think in 1980 or 81, he sent a, a testimony into our, the House of Commons Select Committee um, looking at economic policy. And he said, not even a Rip von Winkle would do what you'd be doing in my theory. This kind of like really slammed um, what Thatcher had done in terms of. Um, um, in, in his name, really, in, in, in monetary. It's a bit like how people would say how, like, you know, Karl Marx would have been appalled with, you know, what people have done in his name and, you know, Soviet Union, that kind of thing. It's a bit it's a terrible comparison, but it's basically the theorist is like, what have you done? So in some ways, in Britain, it's been the idea that rather than a, a Milton Friedman kind of a gradual slowdown of money supply, um, it was more like um, a Hayekian, you know, Frederick von Hayek, um, a different economic theory, more like a short, sharp shock to the system, um, which happened in Britain, of course. And the big thing for this, in terms of the politics, is that when Ronald Reagan comes in to power in, in 1981, um, his administration are very keen to stress that there are differences between Reaganism and Thatcherism, because the Washington, I think it's the Washington Post, they, they, there's, they, there's an editorial which says that there's concerns that Reaganism uh, or Reaganomics will lead to Thatcher writers. Um, there's a sense that actually Ronald Reagan's taken us where Britain is. And Britain has like three, four million unemployed in 1981. Um, so when Margaret Thatcher makes her first visit to the United States as um, Prime Minister, um, she's the first major world leader to go to the Reagan White House. I think she's the second leader technically. I think the South Korean um, leader goes there first. But I think Thatcher's the first major leader. So on the one hand, they're talking the same language about small government, um, sound money, getting inflation down, economic growth, um, you know, Cold War, you know, up Soviet Union, that kind of stuff. Well, that's going on. Donald T. Reagan is actually at the um, House Representatives at a select committee or at the committee hearing, um, saying that although what we're going to do is different to what Margaret Thatcher's done, and um, there's a memorandum circulated into the press outline the difference between Reaganism and Thatcherism. And this leads to um, Jeffrey Howell, um, Thatcher's Chancellor, to have an exchange with Donald um, 
Regan and, and I think they're basically saying, why are you, why are you being mean about our economic policy? We need to stick together. We're friends. And um, and how we even offers to send our overseas civil servants to, you know, have you know FaceTime and talk with, with Regan's team about this. So there are differences how they approach it. And it was that again, that kind of the soulmates go back to your first question. They're trying to promote this idea that almost basically Margaret Thatch can now say. I'm having a hard time domestically, unemployment time, getting criticised. At one point, I think it's like 188 top economists write to the Times newspaper, slamming her policy. Um, she can now say, well, I'm not crazy. You know, I'm not wrong because Ronald Reagan's doing the same thing. And Ronald Reagan's saying, well, I'm going to, you know, just like Margaret Thatcher, we're going to, you know, reduce the size of government, restore our belief in people, like all that kind of stuff. But actually, at the same time, his team are distancing themselves from Margaret Thatcher. So it's actually quite a complicated thing in terms of both like the PR message they're giving, mm. um, but also the reality as well. Reaganomics, Thatcherism, inflation today. Uh, yeah. Do you see any of those solutions being applied today? I mean, could they even uh, work in the same way? Uh, how would that how would that play out in your in your eyes? Again, I'm, 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 not, I'm not sure I'm qualified. Um, so, but I think my as a as a historian, obviously someone who's looked at the last kind of 10, 15 years of economic crisis, because we've had economic crises now for God, 15 years. We never really got over the 2007, 2008 period. And I think from what I can tell, and again, I'm sure there might be listeners who might be, um, you know, maybe slack, you know, you know, very unhappy with you, might disagree strongly. But it seems to me that central banks are coming printing money quantitative easing and there's a lot of money supply happening and then we've had very low interest rates um we then had to spend obviously huge amounts of government taxpayers money in terms of um you know for the pandemic to deal with the the the, the pandemic and the recovery from the pandemic so in some ways you know my my worry is first just someone who's who you know has a, has a mortgage and a family is that is the cupboard bare mm-hmm. in terms of what do you do next um, whereas, of course, Reagan, you know, in terms of Reaganomics, in some ways actually could make the argument he's almost like a supplier that comes almost like a neo-Keynesian, that it actually was deficit financing, that rather than spending the money on big government projects, you would cut taxes to increase the economic growth. Um, so the deficit actually helped. Similarly, similarly, kind of like, it's almost like a reverse version of Keynesian in some way. And, but I don't think we've got the capacity to borrow any more money and obviously you know the high inflation we have you kind of got to hope that it kind of like works itself out somehow but my fear is that there is an argument actually the the economic growth that happened in the 80s under Reagan and Thatcher and the decline of the inflation which they oversaw and ultimately the lowering interest rates it happened because of a recession and also the idea that recessions based kind of for the ones better phrase kind of sweat inflation out of the economy um, you almost have to do that to get rid of the inflation. And that's obviously a terrible thing that you don't wish anybody. And I think, therefore, it goes back in some ways to what I would argue is Margaret Thatcher's, in some ways, a key economic political um, change she brought is that in the British context, unemployment was the deal breaker in terms of your political fortunes. And actually, the idea if you had like a million, two million unemployed, there was no way you were going to get re-elected. There's no way at all. But Thatcher got re-elected in 1983 despite high unemployment, despite that economic hardship for people. And that's because you brought inflation down. So it's almost the idea if you bring down the, 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 actually the cost of living is key in terms of inflation and interest rates. And that unemployment is tolerable 
politically. Um, so obviously in terms of the American context, in terms of um, monetary, monetary supply, inflation, interest rates, the president doesn't really, is opposed to, depending on the good humor of the central bank, you know, depending on the, the uh, chair of the Federal Reserve and, uh, you know, obviously, um, morning again, the American 984 happens where you obviously, the midterms, the Republicans have a bit of a, a hard time because of the economy. But after about a year or 18, the economy is picking back up again. Maybe there's been a loosening of the uh, of the money supply by the Federal Bank and helping that recovery happen as well. So, yeah, in terms of, I think it's very different circumstances to the 70s and the 80s. I think because of the financial position, we probably found ourselves in since 2007. We've probably never really recovered from that. That'd be my very layperson's perspective. Um, but so I don't know what Reagan Thatcher would do now, but uh, I'm not quite sure they could do well, what they did that way. Well, that's what we're here to try to figure out on the podcast. But um, we have a, we have plen plenty of other friends who can help us work through yeah. those ideas too. Yeah. You know, uh, we've talked a little bit about economics as kind of the big issue that Reagan and Thatcher confronted at the start of their terms in office. But there's some other big issues they were confronting that you point out in your book. And one of those is the Americas and what's going on in the Americas and what's going on in America's backyard. Falklands War, the invasion of the Granada, all sorts of kind of hot spots that um, have a, a, a unique uh, relationship to both the United States and, uh, and the United Kingdom. It doesn't seem like they're on the same footing all the time on these issues. This seems to be a, a big part of your book, that, that there's some real daylight on, on when and where to exercise military power, when and where to make a show of British or American strength, and how that actually might affect the kind of bigger grand strategic calculus in confronting the Cold, Cold War enemy number one, the Soviet Union. Uh, so tell me a little bit about about those two hotspots we just brought up, Grenada and, and the Falklands War. Again, I think it goes back to the idea of interest, doesn't it? If you talk about you know, the special relation in terms of they do, does, do, the, do the president and the, and the prime minister get on? Are they friendly? Do they have a shared worldview of philosophy? Also, they are politicians and they put their own interests first. And in terms of the Falklands War, of course, um, Thatcher saw it through very much the prism of you know, the Falklands is British, is British, and um, the, the Falkland Islanders want to remain British, and therefore this invasion cannot stand, and we're going to take the Falklands back. Now, for, for a lot of people, they were still surprised that Britain still had a navy. So I think there was that kind of element, oh, wow, we still got a navy, that, that's cool. Um, so obviously the, the Reagan administration were divided on this, and that's because of the, um, also Argentina. I mean, the military, um, the Junta, um, the Junta of the Junta, uh, the, the, the Johnson and um, they weren't communists. <laughs> um, and so very much the idea that actually we can't, you know, the Reagan doctrine as it becomes is that we, we can't, you know, we want to prevent, you know, the, the spread of communism, especially in our backyard, and we want to roll back um, communism. And we cannot tolerate, you know, another Cuba effectively. We don't want more communist uh, um, countries in our, in our hemisphere. And there was concerns with the Reagan administration that, if the British won in the Falklands, the, the military junta would collapse and you'd end up with the Peronists. Um, not kind of like the singing, happy Evita Peronists kind of thing, but actually the communists would take would, uh, would come in and take, take over. And that was seen to be a very, very bad thing. So there's a big divide here where do we kind of like back up, you know, the, the Argentinian um, government 
or the, the, the military junta um, who aren't communists um, and make sure they don't fall or do we take a risk that the communists come in and but by doing so we upset our perhaps our close ally our close ally in Europe uh, Margaret Thatcher and this is why Alexander Hay tries to sort out a peace till Jean Kirkpatrick to the EU and trying to sort you know stop this from happening but ultimately of course, and I think Caspar Weinberg at the end of kind of being very much in favour of British being shown um, in, um, intelligence and so on. And, but ultimately, it comes down to again, first uh, of realities that the navy is on its way. So either are they, are, is, is Reagan going to order the American navy to stop the British navy? So it's, it's kind of like a fait accompli. It's happening. So that's so basically that's meant to do just kind of like stay neutral, just not get involved at all, or do we actually? just basically get involved, but basically ask the British not to humiliate the Argentinians um, and, uh, and make sure that you know, agreement can be happened quickly. And that's really what happens. Um, so also, and, but when it comes to Falkland's war, of course, this debate within the Reagan administration, of course, you know, it's clear that what, what, what's hard to fall down on. And there's a big relief when um, Reagan delivers his speech in Westminster um, in, on June the 8th, in 1982. And he's talking really about the Cold War, really talking about it's this visionary speech where it's really the, the first major Western leader to say that the Cold War will end. The Cold War can be won. We're not going to be in this bipolar, divided world forever. But within that speech, um, he talks about the Falklands and how actually, you know, these British boys aren't fighting for mere real estate. They're actually fighting for freedom and sovereignty you know, and, and all, that, all that stuff. And, and so Margaret Thatcher, according to British press, she's almost got tears in her eyes. She's relieved that Ronald Reagan's came out publicly endorsed the Falklands War. But it's interesting, as soon as the, the war comes to an end, it's very much the, the admitted the Reagan administration is very keen on this, that we need to sort this out for the long term. We don't want this to happen again. We don't want to humiliate um, the Argentinians. But, but also, it's weird. if you look at the, the, the records of the meeting, which I'm sure you, you have, Nancy, it's just there's attempts by Thatcher at humour in these meetings. I remember there's this bizarre comment talking about using sheep to like look for landmines. It's just really bizarre kind of. So, um, but so, so she's got these weird attempts at humour in there, which is very on Thatcher, Thatcher like, really. But she, she was maybe, things, maybe not a comedian. Uh, yeah, but she's very pleased with her victory. She's very kind of like, you know, she's not on a high. So, um, so that's after the, the Falklands happens. And of course, that's very much connected to Grader when, um, when of course, you know, Grader had the, the Americans into invasion or intervention in, uh, in Grader, this frustration that Thatcher didn't support it because the Americans supported the British when it came to Grader. But again, in many ways, the context is a bit different where, of course, the story of Grenada is, you know, basically get the deputy prime minister you know, basically, Sasson basically kills the Prime Minister Grenada. She almost goes from this kind of Marxist government to more extreme Marxist government. Uh, but they're all, but they're a member of um of the British Commonwealth, and so the United States invades one of the Queen's possessions, to put it crudely, without consulting the British government, which was you know it's it's a bit embarrassing for Thatcher. I mean, there's you know she's humiliated. You know, um, the leader of the Labour Party, Neil Kinnock, at the time, he says so much for your special relationship. You weren't even consulted on all of this. Um, but it's such a surprise that I think Jeffrey Howe in his memoirs, the, at this point, probably the foreign secretary thing, so like the secretary of state in, in American terms, he says how actually a lot of people in the British government didn't even know where Grenada was until this actually happened. You know, we couldn't find it on a map. Uh, but actually, you know, suddenly, suddenly it's a big deal. Uh, but fact is she's embarrassed, she's humiliated because she's certainly, say, the, the 83 election 
um, campaign, which is re-elected. There's this footage of her and Reagan together. It's a big message that finally we've got British Prime Minister who's taken seriously by world leaders, including the American president. She makes a big deal of, you know, Ronald Reagan's here, we're friends, we're allies, we're in this together. And suddenly he just does something without consulting her. So, you know, he writes in these diaries, Reagan does, doesn't he, that she, doesn't, she, she telephones him, she's very unhappy about this talk of invasion, asks him not to do anything, and he can't tell her. He says, I didn't have the heart to tell him it had already happened. Um, so, of course, then he makes the famous um, phone call where um, he calls to apologise for all this. And uh, it's quite interesting. I think it's what I would say to my students, that this, this, this conversation they have is actually a classic source to look at in terms of the audio and the, um, the document. But if you read the document, Thatcher's very... She's t- she doesn't say anything, which is very unlike Margaret Thatcher. She's very short, very kind of like, you know, very bullet points. And he's very apologetic and, and, and so on. Um, but the audio, I think she sounds a little bit more friendly. She kind of like, you know, she's she's she, she's still warm to him. Not Bob's just a bit embarrassed, disappointed. But with Grenada, of course, it, the, um, the big story for me in terms of Anglo-American relations that comes out of that is that they send um, the Deputy Secretary of State, Kenneth Dam, to meet with Thatcher and actually make a big effort after Grenada to constantly almost talk to her a lot. There's always someone talking to Margaret Thatcher, she feels like she's in the loop. When Dam goes to meet her in Downing Street, um, it's like, I think the, the memcom, the memorandum of the meeting, uh, I think the first three or four pages of notes are just her telling him off, just basically expressing her frustration that this had happened. It's always done now, we have to move on, but she's clearly very, very unhappy um, that this happened. So, but they, they, you know, would the Americans have done something similar for another country? I don't know. Mm. I mean, just, you never know, but I'd like to know if everyone does know, then that'd be great to hear. But I think it does show that she was held in sufficient regard that they dispatched someone to essentially go and take a telling off. Um, and he must have known on that plane what he was doing. He was very much taking one for Team Reagan, I think. Well, from uh, from one backyard to another, Northern Ireland also seems to be a point of contention. Uh there's some uh, domestic politics for both countries at play there. More Catholics in Congress than at any point in American history when Reagan takes office with a proud Catholic Speaker of the House and Tip O'Neill. Seems like a recipe, a recipe for, uh, for some tension in the relationship. Want to walk yeah. us through it? Yeah, there was tension. Um, I think that... When it comes to, to, to Northern Ireland and, and the United States, I think the American president had always, throughout the Troubles, so from kind of like Johnson onwards, so Johnson, Ford, Nixon, they'd kind of stayed out of it. <laughs> uh, they hadn't really commented on it. Um, and it's because of it, the nature of the American presidency is that it carries weight. You know, if the American president says something, it carries a lot of weight, it really matters. Um, but you've always had, you know, but, from the late 60s onwards, you had, you know, people in Congress who were very unhappy with what's happening in Northern Ireland. Um, and you get different, two based, two different groups emerging in Congress. You get the Four Horsemen, who are very much influenced by John Hume, who goes on the course for the Nobel Peace Prize to, um, for um, the Northern Ireland uh, Peace Prize, the Good Friday Agreements of 1998. And uh, he's very much influenced people like Tip O'Neill, Ted Kennedy, um, Daniel P. Moynihan and Hugh Carey as the governor of New York. And they're very much kind of like pro, you know, 
yes, you know, they, they want there to be a settlement and they want to use American power, um, economic influence to support that settlement. Um, whereas then you also have a group called, you know, very much kind of, you know, like led by um, Mario DiBiagi, who's an, an, an Italian-American um, from New York. It's much more of a firebrand critic of the British in Northern Ireland. And, you know, and there's some suggestion that, you know, based how he was taught, was much more sympathetic, some more, you know, basically get the British out of Ireland, almost like, you know, supporting the, the goals of the, the IRA. And so the British government were very kind of aware that what's happening in America is the interest in this issue, to the extent that in 1976, during the, the election campaign there, when Jimmy Carter, because he walks down in New York with the a badge or lapel on him saying, get the English out of Ireland, and he's pictured doing this. And then, of course, when he's clearly the nominee, um, a few days before the um, election, he meets with the Irish National Caucus, who basically want the British to get out of Ireland. And um, so, and there's a panic in the Foreign Office about this. And the Foreign Office, um, so our, our State Department, if you will, um, end up speaking to the Carter campaign and the British are reassured that no, a, pres a Carter presidency would not lead to, you know, demands that, you know, this, you know, the British get out of, you know, leave, leave Ireland, that kind of thing. So there's all this kind of on the agenda. And um, Jimmy Carter, he, because it essentially has to obviously work with Tip O'Neill and Ted Kennedy, um, his own, his own kind of agenda as well. And because of his arrangements with them and support, want support from them, Carter actually makes the first American president's declaration about Northern Ireland, promising financial support if you know a deal can be done, if something can be sorted here. And that's kind of what Ronald Reagan inherits. So you got that the um, Kennedy, you know, Neil and their group still wants there to be some sort of resolution, talk about some sort of settlement happening with the promise of American money to make that happen. Reagan, he doesn't, he doesn't really, on, he doesn't really have much interest in the nuances of the issue because obviously he's far as he's concerned, it's the Cold War and tax cuts. Um, that's what Reagan thinks, and he just sees it as very much a British issue. Um, and he very much with that, he makes quite clear to so that oh, he doesn't really want to interfere. Unfortunately, of course, you, you get the um, you get the hunger strikes. Um, you get you know there's other failings of trying to sort out assessment there, and Thatcher seems to be increasingly intransigent, stubborn, not willing to even budge or try to work with the Irish government on this. And so Reagan comes under pressure to to say something. Well, Tip O'Neill writes to Ronald Reagan and says basically, could you please raise this issue with Norman O'Malley? Thatcher say we want to see some progress happening. And so Reagan, in some ways, I think Reagan's a very underrated a politician. And so what Reagan does in it's the, it's the Camp David in 1984, so I think I just talked about SDI. That's near the end. Near the end. <coughs> Excuse me. Ronald Reagan produces the letter from Tip O'Neill saying, oh, the Speaker of the House asked me to raise this with you. So Reagan's not raising Northern Ireland with Margaret Thatcher. Tip O'Neill has raised it. And so Margaret Thatcher says, oh, yes, I'll get on great with Gareth Fitzgerald, the Irish Prime Minister, the Taoiseach, and uh, we're always working towards a solution. And that's it. Reagan then writes to Peniel saying, I raised the issue of Margaret Thatcher. Um, so we kind of like absolutely brilliant, really, in, in many respects. Um, but I think the issue of Congress really comes to a head where Thatcher's meeting with Jimmy Carter in 1979. Again, a lot of the meetings taken up by the issue of guns and arms for the Royal Ulster Constabulary, where um, Tip O'Neill allows an amendment to go through. Um, and I think the Defence the defense Department budget or State Department budget, basically, um, Mario DiBiagi, he wants to, to, to stop the American arms sales to um, Northern Ireland, to Royal Ulster, to conserve the police in Northern Ireland. 
and Tip O'Neill has to get, let it go through because if he's talking about peace and that we shouldn't be sending money to the IRA and so on, we should stop you know, American funds, the IRA, and American for the, the IRA, he can't then say politically, Blong and allow the Royal Ulster Constabulary to be using American weapons. So O'Neill has to feel he has to let this through. As Thatcher says to Jimmy Carter, you've got to, I'm really happy about this, you know, and she even starts talking about how she loves that gun. And it's better than British guns. And she, she goes through why she loves the gun. And he has to say, you have to talk to Tip O'Neill. Because Carter's not want to get involved. He hasn't got the time to get involved with this. But he knows it's issue of Congress. So I think in terms of especially, like, you know, American foreign policy, anger-American relations and things, that, that actually it's not just about the presidency. There are other actors that really do have an impact on things. Um, but ultimately, of course, I mean, there is um, the Anglo-Irish agreements in 1985, where a consultative mechanism is put in place more um, over Northern Ireland between the British and uh, the Irish government. And Reagan, of course, um, he then he gets Tip O'Neill on board and they make a statement and there's going to be the, in the Fund for Ireland. So basically, the American will be sent to help regenerate Northern Ireland. So almost delivering on what Jimmy Carter said would happen. But for Reagan, he writes the story that peace has come to Northern Ireland. So because that wasn't the case, I think it's more that Reagan was just, his focus was on maybe other things rather than what he saw as a very much a British domestic domestic problem. Um, so I think for Reagan and Thatcher, tensions are very much between Thatcher and the Democrats in Congress. And I think Reagan was, I think, navigating that quite smartly, really. Well, that's pretty interesting. So we've dealt with some pretty heavy issues here. War, troubles, inflation. But uh, maybe we could take a step back, get a little lighter, get a little more fun. Reagan's an Anglophile. Seems to have a, a love of British cinema, a love of British theater. Thatcher is an Atlanticist. Yeah. Did their uh, early kind of cultural affinities for each other's societies have anything to do with how their relationship played out when they were a head of government? I think Thatcher was a great admirer of the American system about, you know, the American, you know, the, the, the economy and um, ingenuity, enterprise, free markets, um, perhaps, you know, the, the, the smaller government, self-reliance. I think she was very much kind of an admirer of that sort of American way. And um, so I think she was in some ways trying to bring that in, in that kind of mentality um, into the, to the British culture. Um, and of course, Reagan, you know, like, for a lot of Americans, you know, he'd love to, you know, the British pop culture. Um, of course, he, you know, he enjoyed being, being photographed, um, doing horseback riding with the Queen. Um, so, of course, that was obviously, good. I'm sure it's good for him, but also for um, consumption for American voters too. Um, and I think America, Reagan, if, if he, was, he loved the, is it the Hasty Heart, I think, was an American British play he saw perform once when he was a kid. He absolutely loved that. So I think it's quite, yeah, I think, Absolutely, you know, you love British culture. That's obviously fascinated by American culture. Um, I think that's also admired Lincoln as well. Um, so I think there's lots to. I think yeah, I think there's, there's, there's obviously got an affinity towards each other's countries, and they're sympathetic towards each other's countries. And I think also got to think about as well the what well, again I tell our, our, my students is that we've got to think about the age of our leaders and what how they grow up. And for Thatcher, of course, she's a child of the Second World War. So for her, her hero is Winston Churchill. And of course, who was Winston Churchill's main man? You know, Franklin Roosevelt. So for her, the you know, this Anglo-American relationship is vital um, 
for us, she's concerned for, you know, for, for the Western world um, and for, you know, the, the fulfillment of her hopes and, you know, for her values and so on, especially during, during the Cold War. And, you know, like, likewise, Reagan, you know, Reagan, you know, grows up, you know, obviously, you know, poor and in, in Illinois, um, difficult home life, um, goes on, you know, as, as you all know, goes on to, you know, be radio broadcaster, um, film actor, but also, you know, it's, he's a Second World War guy. You know, he's very much formed by the Second World War. So again, so when he thinks about Britain, he's going to think about Winston Churchill. Um, and I think there's a real lovely story in, um, in Reagan's memoir, um, second memoir, the, the American Life. And he, he might one of those apocryphal things, like, because Reagan is you know, the great storyteller. He says how um, on one of his visits to, um, to, to, to the UK, I think probably, probably relates to one in the 70s, in 78, where um, he said to someone, oh, that Margaret Thatcher, I think she'll make a great prime minister one day. And the person, the British person, is, well, a woman prime minister? How can we, you know, can't have that? And he says, well, you know, the Queen called Victoria and she did quite well, didn't she? So it's almost like, yeah, so I think there is that kind of affinity for each of us cultures and you know, each of us kind of like the sweep of history um, that, um, that they're remembering the stories I remember as well. So the sweep of history. In yeah. the sweep of history, where do they stand in terms of closeness and specialness of the relationship? Are they quite on the level of Churchill and Roosevelt, who, who also had their disagreements? Are they even more close, more intimate, somewhere farther apart? And uh, where do they stand in relation to the last 10 years? Uh, Anglo-American relations don't seem as close as they were in the 80s. Well, I think sometimes it, because the, the arc of history, um, you know, as Barack Obama likes to talk about a lot, didn't they? Um, I think in terms of the, the characters you're thinking about, in terms of comparing Reagan to, to, to Roosevelt, um, as, you know, Thatcher to Churchill, um, I think it always comes down to, in terms of as individuals, how do you compare them? And obviously, there is the uh, strong argument that Reagan was perhaps just as transformative as Roosevelt. You know, you have Roosevelt for the for the left, if you will, uh, from like liberal America, and then Reagan for conservative America. But also, for me, it's, it's like there's different tiers of president. So I think, and I think I'm very much with like Bill Brands. I like how he explains it, where you don't want to be a great president. Because to be a great president, it has to be a you know a horror show that you've inherited. So, you know, obviously Washington's you know because he has to get it all going. Lincoln, the Civil War, and Roosevelt because it's the Second World War. Um, so, you know, I'll be putting Reagan in kind of like the next tier down, which is like transformer sense, like in terms of his rhetoric, the discourse, what he represents. And for Thatcher, that's the same kind of thing. I think Thatcher has a policy. She had you know, the majority House of Commons, and she she probably somewhere's achieved or accomplished a lot more. In terms of, kind of Anglo-American relations, I think obviously different, you know, different circumstances, different times. Um, I think the fact said earlier on that I think you do think about the special relation, you do think about Churchill, Roosevelt, Kennedy, Macmillan, Thatcher, Reagan, Blair, and Bush. I think that tells you how, in the perhaps the popular mindset, that examples of when this really works and comes together. But at the same time, again, a bit like a Brandsian approach, you've got to think about the context and that Church and Roosevelt were very close and just, because they, it was the Second World War, Churchill needed the United States to join the war. You know, he could, you know, it would have been anyone. <laughs> he would have been, you know, he could have been, <laughs> anyone could be president. He would have been like, please, you know, um, you know, let's, let's be friends. Um, and likewise, you know, Macmillan and Kennedy where, you know, Britain is very much kind of like, you know, decline, in decline in terms of, um, its influence and power on the global stage, but obviously at Millen, 
you know, very much sees Kennedy as a, a young man who can, you know, has a good relationship with that kind of mentoring figure with. Um, obviously got some common and common nice view of the Cold War as well in the 60s. And for Reagan and Thatcher, it's they've inherited again this kind of crisis or prime economic crisis at home. And it's kind of like global political crisis abroad where you do have the Soviet Union kind of you know on the march again in Afghanistan. You have this kind of this big rise into international terrorism and hostage taking and so on. So it's kind of like the events that and then obviously Blair and Bush is you know the war the war on terror. So it's almost kind of like the the events kind of bring these people together. Um, and it's often you know, have to have the same philosophies or some commonality, but obviously all the policy differences too. So, and so in terms of like, you know, the last 10 years, um, there has been you know, a, di a divergence. Um, but again, I think it is kind of, a, again, goes back to politics and interests. So for, for instance, when Barack Obama was elected president, I remember watching, um, the weekly Prime Minister's questions that we have in the UK, where every week, um, your listeners may, be, may or may not be aware that the Prime Minister today has to go to Parliament and is how to account for questions by his, in, by the different, by members of Parliament and the leader of the opposition and so on. And everybody was falling over themselves to say how they're like Barack Obama, how their party is like Obama. So um, Gordon Brown, if members servants, who's you know, Gordon Brown would have been the prime minister, and um, he was, you know, yes, we're just like we're doing what Obama would do. And Cameron said, we as as conservatives, we will do what Obama would do. And Nick Clegg, and Nick that. yeah, and Nick Clegg was. They were falling over themselves, but they, you know, like Barack Obama. And um, so everyone's desperately friends with Barack Obama. And um, so I remember the, there's a summit where Gordon Brown. There's the stories in the press. I was kind of basically chasing Obama around, building the summit, going into the kitchen to like get five minutes with the president. Um, but obviously Obama was extremely hugely popular in the main so in Britain. Whereas George W. Bush, um, who's a very divisive and unpopular figure in the UK, and as as was Tony Blair, as especially after the, you know, the, the the war in Iraq, that when Gordon Brown replaces Tony Blair as Prime Minister 2007, he looks so uncomfortable on the podium. With George Bush because he doesn't want to be seen to be close to Bush. Um, and likewise, obviously, you've got um, when Obama's president, he's much more interested in, you know, in Asia and so on. He's not really that interested. You can argue in perhaps um, Anglo America's not really put a high priority for him, um, despite you know the best efforts of Cameron and so on. And of course, when Donald Trump uh, becomes president, Trump is an incredibly divisive figure over a very unpopular figure in the UK. And it's very difficult balancing that for a British Prime Minister because during the Trump administration, because of Brexit, Theresa May and then Boris Johnson had to appear in pictures and in video footage, you know, TV footage to be kind of like respectful and close to the president because he's the American president and you've got to be aware that he's got people watching. And, he, and obviously he's the president, he should be treated with respect as the president of the United States, but also aware that domestically they don't want to be seen as Donald Trump and um, Boris Johnson doesn't want to be seen as like a Trumpian type figure. So it's really that the divergence has probably happened because of events, political personalities, and probably the interesting genders of the of respective countries. Um, but I, I'm reminded by um, Bernard Ingham was Thatcher's press secretary. He told me in, a, in an interview where uh, it's a wonderful interview where it's one of my first ones I ever did as a PhD student. And uh, we went to the Institute of Directors where Dennis um, first. Uh, saw Ronald Reagan speak and 
he was kept off from biscuits and more tea and coffee and it's all very lovely and uh he said how when um george bush senior comes in um as president they do what so what happens they look to germany you know the germany's the main now we're with west germany later unified germany um as the main ally in europe but then when they soon realize actually it's the brits who can be relied upon so it's almost like actually in terms of anglo-american relations special relationship i think often it's, it is events it's interest that, that there comes a moment where actually who can we the united states depend on or rely on and i think no matter what's divergent disagreements going on i think obviously you don't want this anything bad to happen but i think often when there's challenges and so on you know it's that's kind of when it really kind of kicks in um with that, that relationship but the relationship endures beyond um whoever's at the top and you've got the intelligence sharing um you know obviously the state department very much in many ways kind of mirrors the foreign office in terms of its desk organization um there's conversation all the time between you know opposite numbers and um and of course, with Brexit again, it's like you know the Northern Ireland issue is back on the agenda because you know Democrats in Congress will never sign a trade deal, approve a U.S. trade deal, um, which jeopardises the Good Friday Agreement. So it says Northern Ireland is back on again. Back to Northern Ireland inflation, um, everything's kind of back back to the 70s and the 80s in, in some respect. But um, yeah, so I think it's definitely it's, it's, as I said, Harold Macmillan said, it's events, the appointments, so, uh, which are bring them close together. So at the kind of some point throughout the 1980s, and I'd say not just some point, repeatedly it seems that other allies ask Margaret Thatcher, is there really some distance between you two? And her response always just seems to be, when you're the best of friends, you can have the most serious disagreements. Mm-hmm. How does that kind of factor into your, to your interpretation about this relationship of whether or not they were political soulmates or just interest you know friends and interest and not in in sentiment or in in philosophy or something else i think she probably felt she had so much kind of credit in the bank um because she's supporting so much so over a rank contra scandal she would go on tv and she chastised into she'd be asked what you know what do you think about the ronald reagan and the scandal and she said how dare you ask that question you're lucky to have um president reagan and uh you know, it should be applauded over the phone by the cabinet. The stories about how the cabinet would all get together and clap over the phone. And, uh, I think when it comes down to it, I think if you look at it, it's interesting how she frames the screens. So she would um, often talk to other people. So she would say she was very unhappy about the American deficit. The American was a running sore. It was a running theme for her, how she was, she was unhappy. But she wasn't the only one. Other Europeans were unhappy about this either. Because obviously the, the, the bigger the US budgetary deficit, there was a due to be a connection to that and interest rates. And of course, in fact, just trying to bring down inflation and interest rates, like other people are, it's difficult when the American interest rates are so high. Um, so, but she'd kind of like talk to Donald T. Regan about that. She'd say, well, your interest rates are too high. Um, but also, if she did ever make complaints about it as well, often she, my, probably my favorite um, record of a meeting between Reagan and Thatcher is when um, she runs through a list of all the European countries. She names and shames every European country about what their faults are and what their problems are. So she talks about how, I don't know, I, I, I shouldn't even say it, but disparaging, but she calls people like pains in the neck, 
um, socialists can't be trusted, that kind of stuff. And then she said, right at the end, but your interest rates are still too high, or your budget deficit is still too high. Um, but sometimes yeah, there's moments of clear tension where Reagan leaves the room. Um, he just leaves. So obviously it's other people kind of take the, take the heat a bit. Um, probably Kenneth Dam is probably rolled out soften to to take 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 the, take the telling off before the proper meeting. Kenneth Dam, um, sacrificial lamb for Anglo American. Sacrificial, sacrificial lamb, Kenneth Dam. Um, there's a there's there's a tweet there, but yeah, it's 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 so so for Thatcher, for that very much speak that quote you gave is very much speaks into her her outlook that you would be direct, that you would say what you think, otherwise what's the point? And um, I think obviously for Reagan, he was so. Everyone, everyone meet you knew knew on on Reagan television like the nicest guy in the world, very amenable. So for Reagan, in some ways, probably just was quite laid back about it. He probably just could understand that you know the nature of politics and how things are working out. Whereas in um say the Carter administration, and um, there's a there's a note where Carter's about to meet Thatcher as prime minister, and um, it's events Brzezinski. He makes a note saying she's no longer the, the hectoran dogmatic woman that you met in 1975 or 1977, something like that. Yeah, it would have been 1977. And he writes, I agree. So obviously <laughs> Carter probably didn't have any time for, for Thatcher's approach to to politics, but you know, Reagan, it worked for Reagan. Reagan was a, you know, Reagan probably liked it. Reagan probably, you know, he wanted to know what was going, probably wanted the direct. You know, because you know Reagan, he, he, you read how he when he's going to California, we walk around the state house, you know, say to his staff at six o'clock, go home. If you can't do what you're doing within, you know, what you want to do in nine, ten hours, what are we all doing? So Reagan's like, we haven't got time for this. <laughs> let's just let's work and then we'll go home. Um, so I think it just very much speaks to like, you know, maybe the, the chemistry works. Well, in the interest of following Reagan's example of quality time management, I'll be. Direct as that would be. I want to hear your favorite or the most impactful uh, Thatcher and the most impactful Reagan quote speech that you've come across in all your work on these two. I think for Thatcher, I think it's in a she she made a comment that there's no final victory in politics. So for her, it's like the constant you have to always win that battle of ideas. And the fact that, you know, history, I don't think history repeats itself, as Mark Twain says, it rhymes a lot, that things often, you know, the wheel keeps turning, things keep, you know, coming back again and again and again, you have to keep having the same debates over and over again. So I think the idea that even for, for Margaret Thatcher, you know, first one prime minister, 11 years, so the longest reigning prime minister of the 20th century, and we're going back to Lord Wellington, um, you know, Tony Blair did his best to eclipse it, but couldn't, um, you know, for her to, the fact, and she did, Change Britain. Her policy, they did transform the United Kingdom. And Herbert her said there's no final victory in politics. It's like, in some ways, it's kind of like, I think it's maybe a bit of a, a warning or like a heads up or encouragement to, to people who are interested and do care about whatever side of the fence kind of something you've got to keep on going. Uh, but it's something to also probably speak to some humility that maybe people don't always associate with Margaret Thatcher, but actually she understands that. You know, it goes on. Yeah, the life goes on. For Ronald Reagan, I've got so many. Because what I like to do in my, sometimes in my spare time, I like to look at Ronald Reagan jokes on YouTube because it's just so funny. Um, <laughs> I let my students just watch these things. And, you know, obviously all the, the speak, you know, there's so many powerful speeches. I mean, the inaugural address, you know, he says that government is not the solution to our problems. Government is the problem. 
It's easy to forget that's quite a radical thing to say in 1981. This is a sea change. This is a big, a big deal. But I think my favourite, and I, it's a story I was told by a former congressman, and he told me it's about it's after the um, the after Grenada when the, um, the medical students because they're saved and they're, they're, there's, a, there's an event held at the White House. And apparently Reagan says that, of course, you know, the real reason that we had to go into Grenada is because Grenada is the world's biggest supplier of nutmeg. And we, and, you know, and we had to make sure that those godless Soviets and communists did not stop um, the, the nutmeg um, production and supply, which would have affected eggnog for the holidays. Now, I don't know how true this is. However, what I do like about it is, is, is Reagan's whole idea that the storyteller, so the Reagan the storyteller and how actually he can encapsulate actually the bigger picture of, um, of, of the Cold War. Um, so I think how he actually tells these stories. I think Reagan is this kind of great communicator. You know, there's just such, you know, wonderful things like, you know, just in his memoir, and how he, about how he explains things and how he ex explains the world and um, how he sees, you know, um, how he sees things. And there's a story I think both tell, I think, I think Reagan tells it, but also Thatcher, I think, told as well. And it's that um, and other people around Thatcher I'm told, but I think it's their first summit together where basically, I think they're in, they're in Canada. I think they're yeah, they're in France, the France summit. And, uh, and basically, everyone's being a bit rude to Margaret Thatcher. And, uh, Ronald, and Ronald Reagan goes over to her and says, you know, I'm so sorry about, about the, the, the men, you know, the gentlemen and their, their behaviour. It's just okay, wrong boys will be boys. It's kind of brushes, just brushes it away. Um, so, and also, how, like, again, in like, summits where they kind of look out for each other, where like, in the 84 election, where Thatcher makes sure that US interest rates aren't really discussed. <laughs> Not in in the summit to make sure to make sure he gets he comes out with good headlines and so on. So, um, yeah, I think so. I, 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 I love I love very good stories. I love how he explains things. I love how he tells the story. How he actually manages to encapsulate um, um, big ideas. And I think for Reagan, he's probably like the best storyteller in American politics since Lincoln. I think oh. you know he's up, you know he's up there, isn't he? And uh, so yeah, Jim, I think we'd agree. But we we can all agree on that. One more time, you can find Jim's book, A Diplomatic Meeting, Reagan, Thatcher, and the Art of Symmetry, uh, out in stores now. We'll also make sure to link to it in the show notes. Jim, thanks a lot for, for being with us. Look forward to staying in touch. Thank you, Anthony. It's a pleasure. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Reaganism. New episodes premiere weekly every Monday on YouTube and all podcast streaming platforms. If you like this episode, be sure to let us know and share with a friend.